0: Welcome back to What Do You Make of This? I'm Sean Hanson from Saunders College of Business at Rochester Institute of Technology.
1: And I'm Uri Gull from the University of Sydney Business School in Sydney, Australia. How's it going, Sean?
0: Fantastic.
1: So before we started, you said that you were looking forward to um, having a bit of a banter before we jumped into the... The topic of today, which is nudging. What, what was it that you wanted to banter There's about? There's a
0: couple of things that I find just hilarious in these papers that we've read. One of them consistently refers to nudge defenders. Yeah. <laughs> to me, that's like the, that, that should be a bad name. <laughs> the, the nudge defenders. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, the, the other one was a previous discussion that we had of Seinfeld made me think of a separate topic and I wanted to get your input that that might be particularly, how shall I put this, culturally resonant with you. Mm -hmm. Here on campus at RIT, we have a lot of little cafes and dining halls and things like that. And I was told by one of my students that they all tend to abbreviate the way things are said, right? And one of the places on campus is called Midnight Oil, like the Australian band, right? Mm -hmm. Midnight Oil. And the student's We'll abbreviate that to moyle. Moyle. And I said <laughs> moyle. <laughs> I asked the student, you don't happen to be Jewish, uh, do you? Because I assume anyone of Jewish descent would know what a moyle is.
1: So moyle, anyway. that's the that's the abbreviation of the cafe on campus. That's nice. Did, did yeah, they know what it meant?
0: Apparently. Yeah. Did that they has know the what... only amongst the uh Goyasa Cup crowd? so did your students know what the what was the meaning of the word no i tried I to explain in very tactful mm-hmm. ways
1: um anyway so the topic uh, the topic we're going to talk about today is nudging and specifically yes. we wanted to talk about nudging in the workplace right nudging and, as a managerial tactic yeah and we wanted to talk about what it means to nudge um, people, what are the underlying principles that we need to understand to make nudge work or to think about nudging in a more ethical manner? Um, and also to talk about the efficacy of different types of nudges, um which I think would be useful when we think about if uh, and and what sort of nudges we might might want to employ,
0: yeah, for sure. So first question is, what's a nudge? And actually, we should say the the concept uh, actually comes from uh, or was uh, sort of first articulated. doesn't come from them, but it first articulated in a book uh, by Thaler and Sustine, Cass, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein called Nudge. Nudge. What was the What's the subtitle on that one? Nudge, know. Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth and Happiness. This, is, this was written back in 2008. I think it's been pretty widely adopted since. So the idea um, behind a nudge that comes from uh, Thaler and Sustine is that it's some aspect of choice architecture. Now we're going to define that term too, because it's not self-explanatory, but some aspect of the ways in which choices are set up that modifies people's behavior in predictable ways, but it doesn't it doesn't force their behavior. So it doesn't forbid any options and it doesn't change their economic incentives so you're not paying people to do something or you're not uh, issuing a, a a formal penalty for not doing something but to try to set up their choice in a way that they're more likely to do the thing that you, you want them to do is that a fair characterization
1: i think that's that's a fair description of of the concept yeah it's a an alteration of of the Structural elements of the way we make choices in such a manner that it doesn't limit our freedom to choose from different options, but it does by—I was going to say manipulating, but that's a—that's a charged word. Um, By by leveraging um, very psychological characteristics of the way that we think in order to steer our our behavior, our decision making in a in a certain way that the architect of the nudge sees fit.
0: Right, the architect of the nudge. Now, in Thaler and Sunstein's argument, is the the architect is sort of seen as doing a social good, right? So the premise is that the the choices that are being encouraged are sort of widely recognized as good, right? They they lead to better
1: outcomes. Uh, That's the way they define the concept. Yes, right. right but I think the way can, it's actually go ahead.
0: Well, they acknowledge that you can manipulate or you can structure the choice architect, the ways in which choices are framed in ways that that lead to bad outcomes or outcomes that are self-serving for the architect, you know, the choice mm-hmm. architect. Uh, but they would not define that as a nudge because they they sort of say nudges are, by definition, things that have to be pursuing some sort of public good or
1: or recognized good. Not only pursuing public good, but according to their definition, which I thought was interesting, nudges have to basically help people make the choices that they would have made had they been able to pay full attention to the circumstances of of making that choice right because now it,
0: i want to come back to that
1: okay. at some point
0: we don't have to do it right away because i'm not sure that all uses of nudging
1: are really achieving choices that the users themselves was i i agree i agree but that's what they say that that is required of of a nudge the way they define it and i, I also realize that the way we've Talked about it so far it might be a bit abstract so why don't we why don't we give a couple of examples of different types of nudges so that everyone knows what we're talking about here
0: yeah sure so the one that seems to come up most and i, I as i rec- it's been a while since i read that book but as i recall it's in there uh as well is sort of setting a default for retirement accounts right so one of the psychological impediments is that people are sort of inattentive to things we, we operate on sort of psychological inertia. So if we could coast by without changing things, we would rather not change than change something. So if you set, when a new person is hired, if you set their default contribution at a certain percentage, rather than the default being they're not contributing to savings at all, to a retirement account at all, they're much more likely to invest, you know, to contribute to their retirement account. So you set the default as a certain percentage or you can even raise it on an annual basis. And by doing that, you're helping them save, right? Save for the long run. But it's it's leveraging this fact that they're unlikely to change what's already there. Um, a couple other quick examples. You have things like placing food at eye level, healthy food, healthy rather, food yeah. at eye level increases people's likelihood to choose the healthy option over a, a less healthy option. Uh, So the positioning of food, even in grocery stores or in a cafeteria within the workplace to get people to eat more healthy, making smaller plates, giving them smaller plates psychologically makes them feel more full after a meal than if you gave them larger plates. One of the things that we will talk about is even articulating social norms. Like if it's something like uh, being vaccinated and you say, you know, some percentage of the workplace is vaccinated, then it increases the likelihood of other people to also get vaccinated. And the psychological mechanism there is that we tend to adhere to social norms. We as human beings tend to do what we think is the most popular uh, choice, right? We, we want to behave in the ways that other people behave.
1: Yeah, another another use of the default principle has to do with organ donation. And so there have been studies that looked at how what happens to um level of donation when they changed it from an opt-in to an opt-out default. So by default, you're opting in to donate your organs when when you pass away. And again, the, the, the impact was very significant there.
0: Um, now, that's a good example, though, of one where I'm not entirely convinced that that's merely leveraging the choice those people would have made in either situation. I am an organ donor. I believe strongly in organ donation, um, but I know people who have apprehension because of organ donation and that I don't know that they would opt in if given the choice that a, that an
1: opt-out uh, choice architecture forces upon or instantiates. Yeah, I I think you're right. And I think there are many other examples of the use of nudges across different fields where the argument that they necessarily benefit or reflect people's true choices had they had the full capacity to think about them. I think the argument becomes increasingly tenuous and you know you can think about marketing for instance and arguably many many marketing techniques leverage this idea of nudges even by the way that you design apps or websites in ways that would encourage people to be active to to stay online to devote their attention um, to enroll into a program or to activate something a feature and again there are studies that, that demonstrate how um, for instance, the use of, of of the design of buttons, like an enable button, by using design features that people recognize from other buttons that have already used before multiple times, like they would be similar to buttons that they've seen on Amazon or Facebook or Instagram. So just uh, the idea that they would recognize the features of that button would make them that much more likely to press on the button and enable a certain feature that the designer of the app wants them to enable
0: um but one example of a nudge that that i've seen that's sort of interesting that i'm not sure is uh, also is it perfectly in line with the 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 intentions of the user is like putting a fly in a urinal right so they there's this whole initiative where or this thing where they'll put like a sticker of a fly in a urinal and as any of our male listeners will know um a target is like psychologically something that, <laughs> urinal, that that actually causes people to sort of aim for it, like you're going to wash it off the bowl. And the, the outcome is that it's, you know, reducing messiness of a bathroom in a public space. Now, that's great for the janitorial staff um, and I guess for the space in general. I don't know that that's really about the intentions of the, of the person to whom the nudge is directed.
1: Are you saying, were you given the choice between being neat and orderly and messy and rude to other people, you would choose the latter? I am
0: not saying that. I'm definitely not <laughs> saying that. I'm just saying, I don't know that that's really about the, like, I don't know that anyone, this is, this might get us far afield, but I don't know that anyone goes into the bathroom saying, boy, I hope I can be super, super well targeted. And I don't know.
1: I don't know. I don't know that At any that's rate. Yeah. But I do um, think but- that if if people were sat down and asked what would you prefer to be clean and helpful or messy and unhelpful I think most people would choose to be clean. Yeah, it's a
0: valid point. And if you didn't you you do have a you have a whole different set of psychological yeah. issues. So that's a valid point. So I do want to hit just a couple I thought I think we should hit a couple more concepts just to make clear this whole principle of nudging. So one is this phrase "choice architecture" that we've used a couple times, and again that comes from the the Thaler and Sustine book. And the way I would characterize choice architecture, and I encourage you to to offer an alternative, is basically the ways in which options in a choice scenario are presented. Right. So we design the ways in which choices are presented in such a way that that one might be led in one path or
1: another. Mm. So it might be the order of the choices. It might be which which one of the options we make more conspicuous at the expense of others. It might be the way we frame the kind of decisions we want to make, and and there are various ways in which we can alter the this architecture. But the, the I think the main premise here is that for a nudge to be a nudge, we don't want to we don't want to change the substantive nature of any of the options or remove any option, but just um, alter the exogenous principles according to which we organize these these options. If that makes yeah. sense.
0: Yeah. And in fact, we have, to, we cannot, for it to count as a nudge, we cannot make it, we can't force it, right? It has to be alterable
1: by the actors or it doesn't yes. count, right? So it, by definition, precludes mandates right, or, co- or coercion right. or even yeah. changing the, the financial incentives that's implied in the way that the the, the choices are presented, So we cannot make one choice artificially that much more beneficial to an individual right that's not part of what a nudge is right right
0: so what's the evidence what's the evidence on on nudging what do you think
1: oh wait hold on before we get into that i i I think we did want to talk about some of the underlying psychological ideas behind why nudges work and one of those ideas has to do with the way that we're cognitively wired, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And there's research that dates back, I think, to the 1960s, I believe, the work of Tversky and Kahneman. And one of the ideas that they came up with is the dual, dual system model. So system one and system two,
0: system one and making, system two. Yeah.
1: yeah so in Where the system si- one is oh sorry, you go ahead. The system one decision making is kind of automatic. It's very rapid. It's us being on automatic pilot making decisions without without being fully aware of the reasoning or the the pros what, the and cons. Basis. Yeah, the rational basis, the pros and cons associated with each of the options that we're We're considering because we're not thinking about all these options in a in a systematic, deliberate manner. It's very intuitive. It's very quick. um, It's prone to be to being um, dominated or shaped by our emotions at a given point in time, and it's very efficient in that way. Right? It's it it works, and you know we have this system because it's evolutionary beneficial because often it doesn't we have,
0: require a lot of cognitive effort
1: that's right we so because we're yeah. you know we're cognitive misers we we um, use our cognitive resources in a in a very careful manner because we only have that many of them and we're operating in the world we're constantly bombarded with information stimuli coming at us from different directions and there's no way that we can rationally process all this information so we we, we we are being very selective in the way that we use our cognitive resources.
0: Yeah, and one one word that's often associated with this is heuristics, meaning rules of thumb. Right, things that we that we don't have to think through every time. We just sort of have these rules of thumb for sort of how we get by in the world.
1: And that's yeah. system one. That yeah, and these rule of, rules of thumb are they're beneficial on the one hand because they're very quick and we can employ them without thinking too much or spending too much um too many cognitive resources. But they're notoriously prone to biases and inaccuracies of different types. So that's system one. And system two is the process whereby we think about things in a more deliberate, rational manner, where we actually think about the various options in a... You know, in a thoughtful manner, and it takes time. we we spend um, a lot of energy and resources going through um, different options that we may have in front of us, and we we think carefully about the pros and cons of these of these different options. And so it involves reflection, deliberation, um presumably or allegedly some form of rational thinking. It's a manifestation of our agency, um, our ability to think freely about what it is that we want and the extent to which the different options actually represent what we want to achieve.
0: Yeah, and the interesting thing is that this is sort of the way that I think most of us think about decision-making, right? When we hear the phrase decision-making, we think, oh, yeah, sure, you look at the different options, you weigh the pros and cons, and that that's how you make a decision. The insight from Tversky and Kahneman and and the research since is – that is by far the less common form of decision-making in life. The system one where it's just sort of you know gut feel, heuristics approach is by far
1: the more common technique or strategy. It is. And what's interesting is that even when we would engage in system one to make a decision, which is the intuitive quick one, when asked how we made that decision, oftentimes we would post-rationalize that that decision-making process and and say that we actually thought about it carefully and we deliberated it different up. So we would kind of we we would justify the system one thinking with employing system two language, even though that wasn't really the case at all. After the fact, right? after the fact, yeah. yeah. So, good. so that
0: gives us a, that gives
1: some good background, but let's make that linkage clear. So many of the nudges that we mentioned before and that we will talk about in the next few minutes leverage that system one idea, which is that we are prone to different types of heuristics and rules of thumb and biases and and cognitive inefficiencies of different sorts and types to make us to, or to steer us towards predictable and allegedly beneficial behavior. Exactly.
0: And so... Uh, what do you make of this? Well, like, what, what do you think in terms of like looking at the evidence? How
1: would you summarize the evidence that we see in the research? So, if I were to sum it up in a brief way, I would say there's very clear and ample evidence that nudges work. Yeah, it the works. they work. They work. Sure. They definitely work, which is both promising in some ways, but concerning. In other ways, and we'll want to touch on both of these aspects of using nudges.
0: Yeah, on this on this topic of the fact that that they do work, one of the things I found really interesting, one of the papers uh, that we looked at was sort of a review of some of the research over the last several years. This was from Bashir's and Kosowski uh, in 2020 the paper is called nudging progress to date and future directions and they look at lots of different studies again since uh, since at least 2008 when the when the concept was first articulated effectively and the insight that they they look at different types of nudges automatic nudges nudges that trigger system 1 nudges that trigger system 2 making you sort of reflect and one of the key insights there that i thought was interesting is that automatic automaticity is the phrase they use but automatic nudges seem to be the most effective meaning things that that don't force you to think at all but Im- embed some of the choice into the choice architecture
1: yeah so that was this yeah one of the strongest effect sizes that they found was for automatic n- nudges now can can you Give us an example. What, what do they mean by automatic nudges? What 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 was so I think the, the example default states? example the yeah.
0: the example that we just uh, discussed that I said is frequently invoked, but the the default of you know whatever five percent contribution to your four hundred one k, I I don't recall what the percentages actually were, but a, a default to some contribution to four hundred one k is making that choice automatic, and it actually requires some action on the part of the user to to switch it. Mm-hmm. They can do it, but uh, but the initial adoption is automatic. That would be an example of something that bypasses both system
1: one and system two thinking. Yeah, and and that that was one of the the strongest effect sizes that that they found in their review. And then they they also list a number of different types of nudges that leverage or trigger system one. Uh, one of them that they talked about was arousing emotions. An example of that would be displaying in a at a university examination room, for instance, where students take tests, they would put on the walls posters with big eyes on them. With eyes. Yeah. yeah to make students feel like they're being watched, even though the eyes are obviously just a picture that they don't do anything. But it, it provides this sensation, like you know, Big Brother is watching you constantly, and and it was actually shown empirically shown to to reduce um, um, cheating in exams.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This is the uh, every Catholic mother's uh, uh, strategy of <laughs> telling a child that Jesus is watching. The bane of every teenage boy. <laughs> um, but yes, the that idea that that you're being watched uh, is a It turns out to be a really strong psychological uh, effect.
1: Yeah. Another example of a nudge that leverages um, system one, and specifically that harnesses biases that we have, is what they call um, the the fresh start principle. Mm -hmm. And it works by encouraging people to, let's say, for instance, start a new savings plan at a date that correlates with a point in time that they would identify with a first start, like their birthday, or New Year's Eve, or something along these lines, um, that makes people feel like you know this is a a momentous um, event, and I, I can use that event uh, as a precursor to you know turn a new page and and do something good with my life.
0: I think we should call it the New Year's Resolution Effect. Sure.
1: <laughs> and again, it's <laughs> it found to be very significant. Chain.
0: One one of the other. Examples that they gave of uh, a nudge that triggers system one thinking, I thought was really interesting because they said it's nudges that simplify the process, simplify the processing of information, which kind of led me to think, is data visualization, something that that is very prominent in our domain of information systems, is data visualization basically a form of nudging, right? Good data visualization should simplify decision, decision-making processes or simplify evaluation of data such that it leads you to a decision that you think is more effective than another. So there's a certain degree to which it, it strikes me as data visualization is just a form of nudging.
1: So uh, an example of data visualization would be like an executive dashboard that presents with graphs and diagrams, very colorful graphs and diagrams that are easy to read. Information comes from various organizational functions and processes, right? That's That's an example yeah, of data get- visualization.
0: Yeah, thank you. You 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 helped me realize I take things for granted. I assume people know what we mean by data visualization, but yes, rendering data in graphical formats that, that actually are well designed to the data so that it sort of gives you insights from the data uh, without having to have a lot of sort of exploration of tables and things like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I I, I think um I think it is. it, yeah. it definitely is. It's uh it it it's it leverages this principle that many people are have a much more intuitive capacity to understand graphs and diagrams than, let's say, Excel tables and lots of and numbers.
0: Those system one nudges were were also effective. And I think they were the second most effective of the, of the forms behind the automatic ones, which kind of led me, though, to one of the other papers that we uh, looked at, which introduced a, a different concept from nudging called boosting. Mm. And boosting is basically saying, well, instead of nudging... Why don't we when a person has to make a decision, why don't we just create resources to educate them so that they can, you know, make more conscience, conscious decisions. This paper, by the way, is uh Hertwig and Gruna Yanoff um in perspectives on psychological sciences, and it's called nudging and boosting. And and they're they're very clearly arguing for the boost, you know, rather than trying to use this this nudge as it's been articulated by Thaler and Sunstein, let's create opportunities where people can reflect you know, or educate themselves in the relevant
1: domain. Uh, I wasn't entirely persuaded, I have to say. I think the argument is that not just are, well, first of all, they're temporary, right? Because they only work to the extent that the architecture of a certain The choice architecture of a certain situation is designed in such a way to steer people in a certain direction. But once that architecture goes away and you're faced with a new choice, then everything has to be done again from scratch because people don't get the tools, the fundamental ability um, to make a decision in a certain manner. And I think the argument is that if you actually provide people with the skills to think more critically about whatever the domain is, making financial decisions about how much to save when you're 25... Um, in, in the most optimum way possible, then you actually given people the capacity to to reflect on what they're doing in a more independent way, rather than just do the thinking for them as it were. Right,
0: but I'm not. I guess where I'm skeptical is whether or not people will engage in that deeper reasoning just because you give them the resources. So something like when they're being asked to choose. Uh, a retirement plan, you know, give them some some resources that help them learn about financial literacy. I'm not entirely persuaded. I, I'm, I'm sure the boost can be effective. And I think they do cite some evidence that can be effective. I'm just not persuaded that it would be more effective than the nudge. That the, and indeed, even Sunstein has apparently in some subsequent work referred to boosts. As um, essentially educative nudges, right? So he would still consider these a form of nudging, but a nudging that leverages, you know, some education. I was thinking
1: something a little bit different, and which is the employment of something like a boost at scale. And I think nudges work, and they work at scale because they don't—they—they they don't require anything of the independent decision of the, the individual decision maker. It's just that like once you design a certain architecture in in, in such a way and people would be prone to behaving in a certain direction within that choice architecture. But with boost that actually requires the acquisition of skills on the part right. of the individual. Confidence. Yeah. So how do you roll something? Uh, how do you roll out something like this for 300 million people? Right. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it makes things a bit more complicated. Now, if, if you examine, if you examine it on a case by case basis, then sure it, it's probably reasonable that a boost would be more effective than a nudge. But when you roll it out across a population or across even in uh, like in a business, an enterprise, um, I, I, I think the, uh, the calculation is a bit different.
0: Well, and I think the key with boosts, and I I think probably before we wrap up, we want to have a little bit of focused discussion about the ethics of this whole domain because this is clearly one of the debated points. But I think the premise of the boosts is that it's sort of framed as a more ethical approach to nudging because it's giving people choice and it's very transparent and it's all about sort of letting people build their skills rather than basically manipulating them to do something. And I know that that word is contested, but still – I think a lot of us would look at the nudge literature and say, well, it's a form of
1: manipulation. And there's probably something to it, to what they're saying. Uh, And and we'll talk about the ethics of nudging in in a minute. But uh, I think the idea that nudges are baked into the environment in such a way that they're not easily detectable uh, is something that needs needs to be examined. And it doesn't exist with boosts because boosts are... You know, directed at the individual and and gives tools to the individual in a way that they're very transparent and obvious. I mean, what's it's very clear what they're trying to do. So there's no element of you know doing the thinking for you or making or the decision. Not, not making the right. decision, but yeah, doing the thinking for you or steering you in a certain direction. It's just giving you tools to make better decisions. That's what right. it is.
0: But it's assuming you will use those tools. Sure. Right. That's that's the the question, I think. Um, one other form that I thought was interesting th- that is articulated as a form of nudging, which I wouldn't necessarily have thought of that way, is merely stating social norms. Yeah. So we we did, you know, together look at a study of um, public employees uh, in healthcare organizations. This was specifically in Italy is where the research was conducted, but it was uh, published in Public Administration Review. This is Bell and Cantarelli. And one of the things they did is looked at uh, healthcare workers, and in a survey, they were, you know, basically put in in two different experimental conditions. One in which they were told that in their area, uh, immunization healthcare workers get immunized at high rates, as opposed to low rates. In the other condition, and then they were asked, "Are you going to get, you know, immunized? Are you going to get a flu immunization?" This was actually not. A, related to COVID, which a lot of us might be thinking of uh, in the last couple of years, but it was, are you going to get a flu-, flu shot? And if there was a social norm within your area was that most people got flu shots, your in- intent of getting flu shot went up significantly. And your willingness to encourage coworkers to get a flu shot went up significantly. So this mirror telling people what others do within an environment, if it if it's a favorable outcome, if it's something that we want to achieve, um encourages compliance or increases the
1: likelihood of people doing it and just to finish off the the third finding in, in the study was that people are going to be more likely to ask for help of others in, in an organization where the norm is to that, that people ask for help of their coworkers. The yeah I'm, I'm, I'm not i mean not to sound too too crass but i i didn't find that those findings surprising i think no. they're very consistent with with prior research in, in psychology and specifically, the one thing that they made me think of was um, the psychologist Solomon Ash, who ran a bunch of studies in the 1950s on on conformity. And without going into too much detail into what he did, because he ran multiple experiments, but they're very well known. And what what he found was that people would readily and knowingly give out wrong answers to questions just because everyone in their vicinity gave the same wrong answer.
0: Right. 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 And so of we, course, Stanley Milgram subsequently built on a lot of this with his famous shock studies. But yes, that we as human beings tend to be uh, willing to to do a lot to not stand out, right? To sort of fit in with uh, those around us.
1: Yeah. And of course, there are, uh, as the Milgram experiments point out vividly, um, these things can be used in in horrible ways, Um because we would be willing to inflict pain on others just because we're being told to do so and we wouldn't want to stand out or we would be you know, more readily willing to um, obey or follow the norms. But they can also be leveraged for good things like the, um, the Italian study pointed out because there, if people believe that it, it is the norm in a certain context to provide help to others, they would be more willing to provide help for others.
0: Yeah, right. Or again, yeah, so more willing to ask for and provide help to others and and to get their flu shot and lots of lots of good public health outcomes for sure.
1: So what um, do you think I, if you're if you're a manager of an organization of a business, what do you think would be the the most useful nudge for you to be aware of and possibly utilize? So I think that so the the social
0: norms one is a good one. Um, because I think that's one that can be very visible, right? Assuming you're not using deceptive information, if there are certain social norms, merely calling attention to it uh, could increase the outcomes that that would benefit the organization. I think of, for example, here, um, I don't know if this is international, but in the U.S., we have an organization called United Way that sort of is a, an umbrella organization that handles philanthropic giving. So most organizations have a United Way drive where they ask employees to donate to the United Way, and the United Way will will um, direct those those giving dollars to lots of different organizations within their community. And one of the things that does happen here in the Saunders College of Business every year is people will call attention to the fact that we have traditionally been very good at giving. That uh, you know we we are one of the we are the college that gives most on the university campus. And, uh, and calling attention to that, I think sets one of those uh, social norms. And so, yes, people might say, you know, it's not going to work this year, but in general, I think it it inclines people to say, yeah, we, we give, everyone else gives, I'm going to give as well.
1: Another thing I think um, managers can leverage in different circumstances is the ideas of integration and simplification. So if you want to, and these are, I guess, related types of nudges that have been demonstrated in, in in various studies. The idea being that if a person is asked to complete a certain action, like enrolling into, a, I don't know, a training module on on what have you, right? Uh, or, or to um, um, fill in an expense form. So the, the simpler you make that process and the more integrated it is so that a person doesn't have to go through five different systems and fill in three different forms, uh, which might take two days and 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 require making five phone calls to different people to get help from them um that's gonna make everything much much more complicated and if you just simplify the process and integrate the whole thing into a single you know form and and ideally with one button to press or a few you know, boxes to click to tick um that would increase people's participation in whatever the the thing is and this I know it great. sounds it it's sounds different. obvious but. but it's giving me- it amazes me how, um, and I, I I don't want to self ridicule, but my my institution is just so bad with this. Like some of the most benign processes that you would think would be so simple actually require going through five different systems. Yeah, and, and yeah. they take days.
0: Yeah, if it's going to require a lot of effort, you're you're just going to hurt yourself yeah. with that complexity. Yeah, actually, this is a great thought. So one of the things as a department chair. Um, I have to oversee certain trainings every year. Folks here in in our college and our university have to take two trainings. One is on uh, harassment uh, uh, harassment within the workplace, and the other is on cybersecurity. And every year, I get these reminders where I'm copied, saying, "You know, please do this training. Please do this training" to the various employees. And then I have to go to them and say, "Yeah, can you can you get this squared away so neither of us get that email anymore?" But it could be, it could. I I think a a nudge could certainly be designed in this situation that simplifies that path. I think another really important question for managers in using nudges, and this will come up as we talk a little bit about the ethical implications, is um, identifying things where you have a pretty strong sense of what people would want for themselves, right? So if you know that within uh, the work environment, people would want a cleaner environment. Well, creating nudges that help them to keep the environment clean might be an effective use of nudging within the workplace. If you know that people would, you know, the, the retirement savings, I think, is a good example of this. Because if you know people would like to save more, then creating that type of nudge could be effective. But I do think managers have to ask, honestly, is any given nudge that they want to initiate being driven by outcomes that they think everyone within the workplace would want? or is it being driven by outcomes that they as the manager would want and i think if it's if it's the latter i think i think it's maybe a red flag should should be raised so what you just
1: said i think cuts to the core of of one of the ethical debates surrounding nudges and and we should say that taylor and sunstein in in their own book promote this idea of of libertarian paternalism yeah, that's which the phrase on, they use. On the face of it sounds like an oxymoron. How can you espouse libertarianism on the one hand, which implies giving people or removing any obstacles from people's ability to pursue their own true ends and objectives and, and follow their preferences and and do whatever they want to do with as as little restrictions as possible from any any centralized entity right with as as few interruptions as possible so that's libertarianism on the one hand but then you talk about paternalism on the other hand which implies somebody standing above you and, and telling you exactly what you need to do and what's right and what's wrong so it's kind of funny how they they reconcile this and and they believe that the notion of nudges helps us reconcile this this apparent dichotomy because on the one hand nudges like we said before, they're designed to help people or to direct people towards behavior that would actually be beneficial for them and that would truly represent what it is that they really want. On the one hand, but on the other hand, it does necessarily implies that there's an architect to these nudges that yes. that designs yes. the choice structure in a certain way so as to allow people to follow their true, you know, true passion, true desire, true interests. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. What what, what do you make of that?
0: Uh, I wrestle with it, because, as a person who is sort of has has some strong uh, inclinations to the libertarian part of that equation and some real misgivings about paternalism, <laughs> I'm not a fan of paternalism despite being a father. I think that balancing act is a little tricky. and there there are definitely forms of nudges that we see that I think, okay, I, I take the point. It's not forced. People still have choice. people could could choose otherwise and and there's also the argument and sunstein has certainly made this in some subsequent pieces where he says well it's inevitable right managers are always guiding you one way or the other so you, you know you're always sort of directing choices so there's an inevitability to it but it there are times when i think it can cross a line and and i think in some in some areas such as marketing right so in in my department we have two disciplines, MIS and marketing. So the, the group is called Department of MIS Marketing and Analytics. And MIS so my, is
1: Management Information Systems.
0: Management Information Systems, yeah. yes, right. And my marketing colleagues might hate this, uh, might hate what I'm about to say, and I encourage them if they ever hear this and you do hate it, feel free to tell me and slap me with an uh, uncooked tortilla. That's that's a trend here in the U.S. right now. <laughs> Kids slapping each other. It's that's a, that's a TikTok meme. People that, slapping each other uh, with it. Isn't that it. cultural
1: misappropriation?
0: It probably, probably is, yes. <laughs> so please don't slap me with it. Uh, but nevertheless, part of me wonders if a lot of marketing is essentially nudging, right? Like nine out of 10 doctors agree. That's setting a social norm or promoting a social norm. Choosy mothers choose Jif, right? It's like, if you want to be a good mom, you better choose Jif. Like so much of marketing over the years or, you know, historically seems like it is leveraging a lot of the same psychological principles that we're seeing in nudging with the difference being sometimes the question of if it's in the best interests of those to whom it's directed is an open question,
1: right? So to you, the the use of nudges in many marketing marketing campaigns or in with many different types of marketing techniques, that's These are examples of where nudging has crossed the line towards paternalism and away from the libertarianism. Yeah, potentially,
0: potentially, right? So one of the other studies we did look at is this Reek et al. paper in uh, Journal of Marketing, and it's uh, nudging app adoption. They look at adoption of mobile apps, nudging the adoption of mobile apps. And this is where they manipulate. They have several manipulations. It's a really interesting study. There's six experiments and a separate field experiment where... They manipulate the designs of the app interface with things like color, different colors, where, you know, the acceptance app is colored blue, which people associate with accepting things as opposed to gray, uh, different contrast, different wording, where the, the wording implies that the default is accepting as opposed to not accepting, setting set, you know, framing the, the acceptance of the app as a default Um the, the ways in which they position it all these different all these elements and what they find is it it works right these different nudges uh with the exception of positioning of where the uh buttons are all the nudges seem to you know as they as they hypothesize seem seem to increase app adoption mm-hmm. well but if that app adoption is good for the developer of the app but not for the person developing it then that is I don't know if that's a nudge, right? But I don't let, know if let's that's make a nudge it, in the way it's been. We've been
1: discussing it tonight. Let's make it a bit more complicated because the study actually looked at uh, the app. They examined was uh, a con- COVID contact tracing app that's arguably meant to be socially beneficial because it's meant to right, curb right. The, the spread of, of COVID and, and all the rest of it. Now, I, we, I don't know that we want to get into the whole political conversation around this. We probably don't. But assuming that that it's an app for good, let's just take that as a, as a given for a minute. Do you still think it's, it's problematic that it, it crosses the line towards paternalism? So
0: here's the issue. Who decides what's good, mm-hmm. right? That's the paternalistic question. The paternalistic question is, I decide the designer decides what's good, right? And one of the core premises that underlies all this is that I know better. I know better than you what's what's in your best interest. Yeah. That's the that's the core of paternalism, right? I know better than you. And I that I bristle at that. I bristle at anyone telling anyone else they know better. And I understand there are domains in which it's true, but it, it still causes me an issue. And we know that it now, of course. You know, nudge defenders, <laughs> to use that term <laughs> again, nudge defenders would say, well, we do know better, right? Like uh, that whole nine nine out of ten doctors agree, that used to be used to sell cigarettes, right? Where people would say nine out of ten doctors smoke, I don't even know what it was, but let's say Winston's, right? Obviously, that was not in the best interest of the people who were being encouraged to smoke Winston's. Uh, it was using the same psychological mechanism, but clearly not for what most of us would agree were good, but I think there's plenty of examples where it could be a gray area. Hmm. Um, so as okay. to as to what's really best for the users.
1: So to respond to this, let's look at a few of the arguments that people have made for nudging. So uh, uh, what you just said that the the emphasis of paternalism and and implying or actually acting on the premise that you know best what what's in other people's best interest. Not not just in general, but for every individual that's impacted by a nudge, you know better than them what's what's best for them. That's the you know that that's taken it pretty far. Um, so that's one of the main ethical qualms that people have had with this. And some of the responses for this. First is like like you said, that that choice architectures are inevitable. Every choice that we make on any given day. Is going to take place within a certain structure.
0: Yeah, it's structured one way or the other,
1: right? Yeah, whether the structure is designed deliberately by somebody or not, that's sort of beside the point. There's always going to be a structure that's going to steer us in in a certain direction. And so, if that's the case, why not make sure that the structure is designed in the most optimal way possible so that as many people as possible make the best possible choice? Even if it's, but there you are, know,
0: there are certainly places in which best possible choices, you're right that that is the counter argument. I still think there are lots of contexts in which best possible choice
1: is contested. Sure. Right. But Whereas let's, let's different just go people through. People
0: would come to different positions. Uh,
1: yeah. I, I, I agree. I, but I'm just saying that's what people have said. And, and by the way, the points I'm making right now are taken from another paper that we looked at by Schmidt and Englen the ethics yeah. of nudging and overview. So one of the things that they're saying is that choice architectures are inevitable, and if they are, we might as well leverage them. That principle and and design them in the best possible way. Of course, we in, in doing that, we we kind of believe that we know better than other people what's best for them. But that's that's one argument argument um, for nudging. Another one is that nudges actually respect people's freedom of choice, right? We because you
0: could choose to go against it or alter it,
1: right? Well, first of all, we don't remove any options from the table. Right. There's no coercion, they're saying there's no coercion involved in nudging. It's just pointing you in a certain direction, but all the other possible directions are not being taken away. They're still there. You can still choose them. And in fact, when you look at the studies, even the ones that find very significant results for from nudging, not everyone follows the nudge. In fact, in I think in almost all studies that I've seen, most people don't respond to nudges. The effect size is still very significant. Um, but most people still do whatever they were going to do anyway. So most people don't respond to them. Well, but then the question
0: is, is that a poorly designed nudge? Right, Because we know they work.
1: Um, well, even when they do work, they don't work on most people. So even the studies are considered to be successful and that they do find that, that nudges are very effective. I don't think that that means that most people respond to the nudges. Oh, I think that's, I'm not sure I agree with that. Well, anyway, we can circle back to okay. this later. But the, yeah, the point right. is that we don't remove any options from the table. People are still right. free to choose whatever options they, they, they want to select. Thirdly, um, it's a very cost-effective way to promote beneficial social policy. Right? it's it's um, like certain for like health or or savings or, or or compliance with uh, you know paying taxes and and stuff like that. Um, so it's more cost effective than than running I don't know expensive ad campaigns about filing taxes on time or um, and it's more effective than taxation than finding people for um, not being compliant with whatever the requirement is or the expectation is.
0: Yeah, more punitive measures like that. Sure.
1: Yeah. So it's more effective than than punitive measures. And so th- those are the responses to um, you know, why why does it still make sense to use nudging, even if they do represent this paternalistic attitude towards people?
0: Right. I still think in in a I think in public policy domain is where this has probably been most well defended. But I do think in management environments where managers, you know, the the use of power within an organization is often defined as sort of getting people to do something that they would not otherwise do, right, <laughs> on their own. Mm-hmm. Depending on the behavior being nudged, um, I think that question of sort of the rightness, the ethical appropriateness of the action, is an open question, like. On the flip side, there are you know, consistent questions about autonomy. Can people choose for themselves what they're going to do? Yes, you haven't forced the choice, but you are definitely structuring it in such a way to guide them to what you want them to do rather than what they might choose for themselves. So, so that sort of freedom of choice.
1: I would like to um, make the conversation a little bit more nuanced, if I may. Like, sure. Like you and I know – the determination or the assessment of any act or policy as ethical or not ethical depends on, on the ethical perspective that we employ to make that, that assessment in the first place. I feel like everything that we've said so far about the ethicality of nudges and whether they violate people's um, autonomy or freedom of choice or agency comes from a pretty Kantian perspective. Um, known as deontology, would would you would you agree with that
0: statement? Well, I think that's the actually I think that's the crux. I think that's the crux of the of this whole assessment of ethics because I think the the I think my the perspective I keep arguing for is coming from a Kantian perspective. Right, we're, we're arguing that people should have autonomy, and we have a duty to treat people as. Now we're going to get very philosophical, but we treat people as means rather than ends. And, uh, you know, Kant's categorical imperative says, basically, we got to assume everyone can make their own decisions, right? That they're all thinking beings that can make decisions for themselves. Whereas a lot of the argument for nudging or supporting nudging is from a, what's called a consequentialist perspective, the most common of which is utilitarianism, which says the determination of what's right or wrong depends on the outcomes. If we get good outcomes, then it was the right action. If we get bad outcomes, then it was the wrong a wrong action, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the argumentation for nudging is perfectly defensible from a utilitarian perspective. Less so from a
1: duty deontological or duty based perspective. I, I think I agree, and and just to um, to emphasize the notion again, deontological ethics essentially claims that there are certain principles that should should never be violated. Because they're inherently moral, and the idea that we should treat other people as ends in themselves rather than as a means to achieve a certain end is one of those principles. And I I think I agree with with what you said before, which is that the use of of nudging to steer people in various directions according to some architect's perspective on what might be best for them is a clear illustration of of using people as a means rather than treating them as ends in themselves.
0: Right. But I do think I this is why in terms of managers assessment I do think if a manager honestly assesses a given course of action and says this, you know, this I, we could in, we could institute a nudge here and it will create outcomes that that I honestly think these pers- these the people I'm applying it to, the people I'm managing would also want to see as an outcome then I think we can get some alignment there, right? Then the two different perspectives can come together because uh, if you if you honestly think you're working in their interests or toward their ends and not just your own, then I think the the ethical dilemmas go away. but it requires some reasoning, some ethical reasoning on the part of managers for sure.
1: you think there's any scope for managers to discuss with employees the the use of nudges before they actually implement them?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I actually I think. That's another element that that I would advise from an ethical analysis perspective is this question of transparency. I think it's pretty important to try to make nudges transparent so that it's, it's kind of like what we do as researchers where you have informed consent. People participate in the study. In order to participate in a given study, they have to acknowledge that they are doing it of their own free will, right? So I think in the design of nudges within the workplace, there is a role for informed consent, and we would just call it transparency. So, yeah, it's a, it, the nudge shouldn't be something secret, but something that you, you're you open about. Yeah, we designed it in this way to try and help us all eat more healthily. or I don't know if healthily is a word. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know. We 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 put only one waste paper basket on the floor so that people won't throw things out as much, and maybe you'll have to get up and walk around and get some exercise and that kind of thing.
1: Or we moving to an open space design because it facilitates more social interaction, and and we know that more social interactions leads to increased productivity. So you yeah, would actually would have a conversation with your employees, that that would be one of your aims. that was one of your aims behind the the move. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that many people do that. Do you think? Do you think it's a common practice to to discuss this with people as to why shouldn't this is being made because of nudges?
0: No, I don't think so. I don't yeah. think it is, but I think it would be a good one.
1: Yeah, I think I agree. <clears throat> Another... do, you, do
0: you see any nudging in your life,
1: either in your workplace or in out in the world? I'm immediately thinking about my wife. Now, how does she play me? <laughs> what sort of nudges that she, does she employ on a daily basis?
0: I'll give you let me give you one that I while well, you think about it let me give you one that I see all the time and I I hate it. You go to a store and as you're checking out they say, "Do you want to make a donation, uh, you know, to help kids in the neighborhood?" And I hate the 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 social imposition of it. I I don't mind giving the donation. I I, I you know, my my wife and I donate to lots of worthy causes. I believe in in philanthropy and giving to others, I hate the fact that I'm being socially pressured to do it. Like it's, you're on the spot. Do you want to give a dollar? And they always frame it as something that's like indisputably good. Do you want to give a dollar to help children? Like they might as well say, do you want to give a dollar to not be an asshole? It, it, like it's, it drives me crazy. And my kids hate it because whenever I get put in that spot, I'm like, nope. And it's not because I don't want to give the dollar. It's because I, I am offended by the social pressure to give the dollar.
1: But this actually reminds me of a, a different nudge that, that leverages the principle of specificity, the, the heuristic of specificity, which is when when homeless people ask for, passersby by for money, if they ask for a specific amount, like 75 cents or a dollar or a dollar and a half, they would be much more successful in getting money out of people if they just ask for, can you spare some change, sir? Or something like that. Interesting. So being more Interesting. specific actually gets, you know, encourages people to give them the money that they're asking for.
0: Yeah. I had a homeless guy last time I gave him money. He, he critiqued the low amount that I gave him, <laughs> <laughs> which knowing me, or you could imagine how <laughs> the reaction that that engendered <laughs> and the guy, the guy was like, you couldn't do more than that. Oh my God.
1: <laughs> it's so, it almost set me off. So, Shall we um, try and see where we're at with the conversation and kind of tease out the main points that we've made so far so that if anybody wants, they can just listen to the next one and a half minutes and get the the gist of
0: yeah. uh, So my take is nudging definitely works. We know it works. Um, I don't think it's ethically unproblematic. So I think managers should explore ways in which they might create nudges within their workplace. I think transparency is key. Trying to be transparent in the nudging, I think, is is key to making sure that it is sort of ethically adopted and and trying to think sincerely about the intentions or objectives of the people you're nudging to make sure that the nudges you're initiating align with what they might desire for themselves.
1: Yeah. And we've also talked about the psychological underpinnings of, of nudging. We talked about how they leverage system one thinking, which is the... Um, intuitive fast uncritical way of, of making decisions and um which is characterized by lots of biases and heuristics and rules of thumbs and things of things of that nature and that's that's why many of the nudges that we talked about actually work and then we also uh, mentioned the various ethical consequences or, or problems one of them you just mentioned and and I guess one of the most parsimonious ways if you will to think about this is the kind of um, tension between the libertarianism aspect on the one hand and the paternalistic aspect on the other hand, and how how we manage this tension because I think I think the tension is inevitable, and I think it exists in in any form of managerial decision that you make or any form of social policy that any government makes. That's inevitable. That's just the game that we're playing. Right? We're trying to manage many different people, um, or or regulate the behavior of many different citizens to. Uh, Hopefully, to their own benefit. And um, I think any decision making at scale involves managing this tension and and nudging kind of just surfaces that tension up to the top. And um, yeah, it's an interesting way of thinking about it, I think. Um, Shall we quickly transition and talk about some of our favorite things?
0: Absolutely. So what do you want to talk about this week?
1: This week, I thought we would talk about our favorite thing to do in either Rochester, which is your current hometown, or Sydney.
0: Excellent. So why don't you take the lead
1: uh, with Sydney and then I'll I'll take the ROC. Okay. So Sydney is a, a tough city to talk about one favorite thing that I have to do there because it uh, just has so many great things about it. One thing that I vividly remember, and I'm not sure if I've told you this before, I moved to Sydney in 2010 from Copenhagen in Denmark, where I I lived for about... Uh, in Denmark, I was, I was in Denmark for about three years. And um, there are many great things to say about Denmark and the Danes, I think you have some Danish roots yourself, right? That's where Hansen comes from. Yeah, I would say that Denmark is is great if you're Danish, but it's not really it's not really set up for foreigners. And um, so I was very happy to um, have received the opportunity to move to a place that was more culturally diverse and and English speaking, and um, I think in many ways more liberal than Denmark, but. Without getting into a comprehensive uh, comparison now i was very happy when i moved to sydney and one of the most vivid memories i have i think it was the first night my first night in sydney i moved into a a suburb called newtown which is a very um i guess alternative liberal bohemian uh, bohemian artistic you name it area and it has a, a main street that's very long and has, I, I would guess, like 500 restaurants and bars on that one that's street. Great. And I was just walking up and down that street with a stupid smile on my face, just looking at all the people and the colors and everyone speaking English and everybody's friendly and just chatty. And it was just such a a, a sense of liberation of, of being in a place where I actually feel like, oh, yeah. This is great. That's, that's, that's what it's, it's meant to be like. And you know, the food is great. The music is great. There's lots of live music venues there. And, um, so uh, I know it's not one of the most famous spots in Sydney, but I would recommend to anyone who comes to Sydney to go to Newtown and, and check out King street. That's the name of the main street. King street in Newtown. Nice. King street. King. Cool.
0: Okay. Well, uh, in in Rochester um i think it's a great place to live as long as you're not danish Do not be no i'm kidding <laughs> i'm kidding um as, as we get all our danish listeners to uh, uh to flame the the uh, audio um rochester is is just a a, a a great town the quality of life here is is really fantastic and one of the things i often say about it is that it has an arts infrastructure that's much greater or much more substantial than you would expect for a, a town its size it's a smallish town uh mm-hmm. city proper is probably a quarter of a million and the region is about half a million people um and so there are lots of great museums great orchestra uh and one of the museums that is most unique and so uh i, I think visitors should always check it out is called the strong museum of play and so it's dedicated to all aspects of play and fun and uh, it's a it's a very cool uh, museum particularly if you have kids and you happen to be coming through rochester new york definitely check out the museum of play and even if you don't have kids uh as an adult i can tell you i always enjoy visiting there and and you should definitely um you will you will find something that makes you feel like a kid again if you go in there nice yeah sounds good cool well i think that it will do it for us tonight um and i'll talk to you next week sounds good sean see you later later